Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Caroline Lee says the killing of six Asian women in Atlanta was kind of her worst nightmare come true. The fact that these small microaggressions and things we experience on a daily basis could become violent and could lead to our eventual deaths. I think that's what was so scary about it. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next, the Atlanta killings and the inextricable link between racism and sexism. And what we eat and where we eat it has changed for many of us over the past year. I have just loved seeing how many people are really engaging with cooking in a new way because they're working from home. Plus, a right whale was recently entangled in a rope off Cape Cod. This has caused an outcry from fishermen who say they're being unfairly blamed. Hey, involve us in the process. Show us the rope. Let us weigh in on what's going on. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, 10 public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. We begin the show with Caroline Lee. Caroline wrote a commentary for WBUR's blog Cognoscenti following the killings of eight people in Atlanta, Georgia, including six Asian women. Caroline was responding directly to news reports that said it was unclear whether the killings were motivated by racism. Her commentary is titled, Call the shootings in Atlanta what they were, targeted violence against Asian American women. Caroline is a student at Harvard Medical School, and she joins us now. Welcome to Next. Yeah, thank you for inviting me here and for starting this conversation. So the man who's been arrested and charged with murder told police he was motivated by a sex addiction, not racism. You write, quote, Racism and the sexual violence perpetrated against Asian women are not separate issues, but matters that are inextricably intertwined with one another. Talk about what you mean. Yeah, in a lot of the media portrayal of the crime that happened in Atlanta and a lot of the discussions about why did this person decide to open fire in these massage parlors that were primarily Asian run, a lot of the conversations focused on the motivations behind it. And I wanted to make it very clear to individuals who were learning about this that it didn't matter to me what his motivations were, that he thought it wasn't related to race, but the impact of the actions spoke for themselves that the fact that six out of eight of the individuals who he killed were Asian females who were working or visiting these parlors was not a mere coincidence. And I think it was important for me to also draw that distinction to validate the fear that a lot of Asian American women were feeling in that moment, because it was accumulation of um, experiencing racism and sexism and our experiences knowing the history behind it all and why that this was all happening. So I think it was really important for me to explicitly 
name it and say, you just look at the actions that he did and the people he killed. And it was very obvious. You share in your commentary that as an Asian woman, you have personally felt like you can't escape the stereotypes associated with your identity. If you're comfortable, can you convey to listeners what you wrote about the ways you've been stereotyped and how it's affected the way some people treat you? I think my identity as an Asian American woman is something that is at the forefront of everything that I do, whether that's my personal life or my professional life. It's almost the first thing that people notice about me instead of it just being a part of my identity. And I think that's one of the reasons why it has been so difficult for me. For example, I'm a second year medical student at Harvard. And I cannot tell you the countless number of times when patients that I have cared for have made comments about my identity to them. And sometimes that's sexual comments. Sometimes I'll be doing a physical exam and people will say things um, that are very sexual or make a comment about my background and the fact that I am an Asian female. Sometimes they see my identity as an invitation to start a conversation about the time that they had an Asian girlfriend. And in a lot of these cases, I feel very powerless to really say anything in response. And it's very difficult for me. And I say all this to make the point that if this is what I experience in a position of immense privilege as a medical student wearing a white coat, it's almost infinitely times worse in my personal life when I do not have that respect and privilege associated to it and how much worse it is for the women who are working in service industries, who are masseuses, who are waitresses, who are nail technicians, and who were the victims of the really painful uh, murders last week. Given all of these experiences that you've just shared, when people don't acknowledge the shootings as a hate crime against Asian people and as gender violence, how do you react to that? I think that was really difficult. The first day or so after the shootings happened is I was in a lot of kind of emotional pain and mourning for the victims and their families because these were women who looked like me, who looked like my mother. And I felt like the other people in my life that I brought up this issue to, they couldn't necessarily see why I was in pain and why I was hurting. And I think that I can't blame them for that because a lot of it had to do with the fact that the news stories didn't highlight the victim's identity. They highlighted the perpetrator. They portrayed it as just another instance of violence. However, for me, it was always more than that. It was kind of our worst nightmares as Asian women really coming true. The fact that these you know, small microaggressions and things we experience on a daily basis could become violent and could lead to our eventual deaths. I think that's what was so scary about it. And I think that's why it is important to explicitly label it as a hate crime so that we can acknowledge that issue. And so that, you know, other women like me, we don't have to explain to others why we are kind of pained by this experience because it speaks to going through our entire lives with these identities. Yeah, I mean, there's a history of violence against Asian and Asian American people in this country that many have argued has not gotten enough attention. 
Do you feel that way? Definitely. I think a lot of people acknowledge that there's been an increase in Asian American hate crimes, especially due to COVID and the pandemic. And I definitely think that's true, but I think it's also important to acknowledge that this history of racism and discrimination hasn't just happened because of COVID. There's a long history in this country of specifically excluding Asian workers, preventing them from coming to the United States, interning them in concentration camps in World War II. In regards to the Japanese Americans, there's a long history in this country of treating Asians as an other, as the enemy that has been perpetuated ever since. And you can really see in modern day. And I think it's important to educate ourselves about this and speak about it because that helps justify and contextualize these experiences. Well, thank you so much for sharing your experience and your story. Caroline Lee is a student at Harvard Medical School and author of a recent commentary for WBUR's Cognoscenti titled, Call the Shootings in Atlanta What They Were, Targeted Violence Against Asian American Women. Caroline, thank you so much for coming on next. Thank you for inviting me. There have been 3,800 reported incidents of verbal assaults, shunning, and physical violence against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders since last March. The organization Stop AAPI Hate says there are likely far more that have gone unreported. WSHU's Cassandra Basler reports on how anti-Asian hate incidents have renewed the push for civil rights in communities across the country. This story originally aired in July. Early on in the pandemic, when Asian and Pacific Americans started to get targeted for bias attacks, New York's attorney general launched a special hotline. The Civil Rights Division used it to track reports of COVID-19 harassment. Connecticut's attorney general wishes he could do the same. In our office, we don't have that. Attorney General William Tong wants Hartford lawmakers to give him power to prosecute hate incidents and civil rights violations. Half the states do. But we don't. And I think people presume already that we do. They presume that we have criminal authority, which we don't. Tong says the coronavirus that spiked anti-Asian hate crimes also made it impossible for lawmakers to meet and vote about his proposal to help. It's personal, too. Tong is the first Asian-American to be elected to statewide office in Connecticut. But he still remembers how one Democratic delegate said she supported his record, not him. And I said, well, if you like my work and think I'm doing a great job, why won't you support me? And she said, because, you know, you just don't look like what I think an attorney general should look like. That was two years ago. Today, Tong's office fields calls like this. Someone in Stanford recently was at a supermarket and she was asked, what was the last time you went to China? And are you from China? And she said, I've lived in this country for decades. And the checkout attendant sprayed her and her groceries with disinfectant. Tong says the victim wants to remain anonymous. It's tough to talk about. He says today's rise in hate against Asian Americans puts all marginalized communities at risk. Immigrant, LGBTQ, religious, Latinx, and Black. When you give license to people to hate, and when people act out on that hate, it raises the risk and endangers people's personal safety well beyond the group that's being targeted. Tong says tougher law enforcement is part of the solution, but some communities don't feel safe calling the police or don't trust the justice system. 
Chong wants to change that. One symbol for him and many Asian Americans of how rarely hate victims get justice is the story of Vincent Chin. You know how they killed my son? One person, the son, hold him up. Hold, held him. Yeah, hold, hold him the up. The son held him, yeah. yes. The father hit him. Kill my son. That's Lily Chin, a Chinese immigrant whose son Vincent was killed by two laid-off auto workers in 1982. They beat him with a baseball bat after a barroom brawl in Detroit. You heard Lily Chin in the documentary Who Killed Vincent Chin by Christine Choi. The killing of Vincent Chin led to the first federal civil rights trial involving an Asian American. It prompted a nationwide pan-Asian political awakening. Choi says even black civil rights leader Jesse Jackson rallied in support. And it was incredible. So many Asian Americans realize, younger ones, uh, feel that you cannot live in this country without understanding the law. You cannot live in this country without understanding the politics. A jury found only one of the killers, Ronald Ebens, guilty of a federal hate crime. A dancer at the bar testified. She heard Evans tell Chin, it's because of you little mother effers that we are out of work. Jurors didn't believe Michael Nitz was responsible, but they did think Evans beat Chin because he's Asian. Asian, like the Japanese car companies that supposedly plunged Detroit auto workers into unemployment. Choi says Evans' defense team quietly filed an appeal. People in the Asian community just stopped demonstrating. So there was no publicity whatsoever, okay, because that was the end. He got 25 years, but they won the retrial. Evans walked free. Vincent's mother, Lily Chin, begged federal prosecutors to appeal. Here she is in the documentary. Everybody, tell the government, do not to drop this case. I want just... For Vincent, I want justice for my son. Neither of Chin's killers went to prison. Choi says Lily Chin was too inconsolable to stay in the U.S. She moved back to China. Stephen Choi is the executive director of the advocacy group New York Immigration Coalition. He works with immigrant communities in the city, and the largest group is Chinese. He says many in the Chinese immigrant community feel the city has neglected them during the pandemic. NYPD was not doing enough to protect some of these community members from being the targets of assault and hate crimes. Choi says he sees more New Yorkers channel that disappointment into activism to overhaul the criminal justice system. I do think that's one of the underlying reasons why you've seen more instances of solidarity within the Asian American community for some of the Black Lives Matter protests. And Choi says these protests bring up complicated feelings for those in the Asian community who remember the unrest of 1992. That's when a jury acquitted white Los Angeles police officers who beat up a black man named Rodney King. Residents of all races looted. Choi says the media focused on images of Korean immigrants defending their shops only from African Americans. Those images created a story of animosity between the Asian and black communities. I think a lot of folks in the community recognized, okay, this is another instance where I think there's going to be an an effort to try to pit um, other communities against each other 
Let's avoid that. Let's not buy into the narrative of immigrant shopkeepers being attacked by black community members. Let's actively renounce and denounce that. When businesses were looted in Minnesota, some Asian restaurateurs in Minneapolis posted on social media in support of Black Lives Matter, saying things like, my property can be replaced, lives cannot. But not everybody feels this way. Choi says there are thorny conversations happening in the Asian community now. These issues, they're all related. People calling us purveyors of Kung flu, hate crimes being committed against Asian Americans, Black Lives Matter issue. We all need to be connected around those things. And, you know, one fight for this community is it has to be everybody's fight. Choi says several Asian and Pacific American advocates have joined with Black-led protests to demand the New York Police Department direct a billion dollars for social services. Last month, the city moved that amount from the NYPD, but activists say the funds are not being reinvested in their communities. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Cassandra Basler. That story is part of WSHU's series, Virus of Hate, on anti-Asian racism during the pandemic. It originally aired last summer and is supported by the Graustein Memorial Fund. The latest round of stimulus checks from the federal government have begun arriving. It's the third round of direct payments since the pandemic began, and for many people, these checks couldn't come soon enough. New Hampshire Public Radio asked listeners how they plan to use the money. My name is Catherine Dargis, and I live in Bethlehem, New Hampshire. Um, I'm going to spend uh, money doing repairs on my car that are much needed. We're going to go and have a, we will have a takeout feast from our local brew club. And with some of the leftover money, I'll probably take my dog in and have his teeth cleaned. Hi, my name is Richard B. and I am from Walpole, New Hampshire. I'm planning on using it to um, pay a little extra on a couple bills, do some repair, have some repair work done on my car. And uh, buy some camping equipment because I'm currently homeless. So I, I was working part-time for the last eight years as a, as a psychotherapist. And in uh, 2012, I had a stroke. And so my health has been slowly deteriorating over the years. And I had to stop working in September of 2019. And so since then, I've been sleeping on couches and trying not to sleep in my car because it is pretty cold here in the wintertime. Uh, My name is Pat Lynch, and I'm in Henniker, New Hampshire. Um, I have no um, insurance, so I'm going to use it to get a pair of glasses and an eye exam, which is badly needed. And the rest is going to go toward uh, my basic living bills. The pandemic hit. I was working with a 29-year-old gentleman who had um, who has uh, Down syndrome, and trying to get him independent and into the community. And of course, he wasn't able to go out, go anywhere. So I lost that job. My name is Beth Salerno, and I live in Ware, New Hampshire. Uh, we're donating uh, the majority of it to organizations that are addressing the losses that so many people in New Hampshire have had. Loss of food, loss of jobs, uh, loss of places to live. Uh, we wanted to get it out in the community where it could do some good as quickly as possible. 
We've been affected by the pandemic like everybody else, but we've also been really lucky. Um, and we have a home and we've both got stable jobs. So we just figured other people needed the money more than we did. Um, so donating it seemed the right thing to do. And I think it's pretty important for people to have some money and to feel like someone is trying to help them. I think that's important. Oh, absolutely. And I am very grateful. Um, it did come at a good month because I'm just doing gig work right now. And I haven't had enough work this month to get my basic living expenses met. And save the rest for um, the next disaster that's going to come up in the family. There's always something that comes up. That was New Hampshire Public Radio listeners sharing plans for their stimulus checks. The story was produced by Todd Bookman. Coming up, how the pandemic has changed our relationship with food. Plus, an entangled North Atlantic right whale off Cape Cod prompts fishermen to ask scientists to show us the rope. Basically, give us proof that fishing gear is to blame. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. What we eat and where we eat it has changed for many of us over the past year. Some people have gotten more takeout, while others are spending a lot more time at home in the kitchen, cooking elaborate meals and simple ones. Irene Lee is co-owner of May May in Boston, which was a restaurant before the pandemic and is now transforming into a packaged dumpling company. She's also a co-author of the cookbook, Double Awesome Chinese Food, Irresistible and Totally Achievable Recipes from Our Chinese American Kitchen. Irene joins us to talk about changes to our cooking and eating habits. Welcome to Next. Thanks so much for having me. So let's start there. How have you seen home cooking change during the pandemic? Well, I guess I should start by talking about my home. I will say I'm definitely eating more takeout than before because I I feel I have a civic duty. um, So that's a great excuse. (laughs) At the same time, I'm also, I think, cooking more like a civilian. So going to the grocery store, planning out meals, whereas prior to the pandemic, a lot of what I ate was just kind of scrounging in the restaurant, bringing leftovers home, that sort of thing. So in my home, things have been pretty different. And then I have just loved seeing how many people are really engaging with cooking in a new way because they're working from home, people digging into their cookbooks, maybe for the first time. And um, of course, all of the posts on Instagram about people's beautiful sourdough, their fancy focaccia, just seeing that is, is really exciting to me. Yeah, you mentioned the sourdough craze. There's like the big lasagna craze. We've seen people taking on those more complicated cooking projects. And of course, we we haven't been able to be together in person. But have you seen a different type of connection and community come out of this? I definitely have. I think our willingness to connect virtually in a way that's really authentic and intentional has gone way up because of the pandemic. Seeing people do the big lasagna with Samin, like that was just so cool. And I, I don't think 
we could have done something with that level of enthusiasm if meeting up in person to share lasagna were still an option. Another example would be at Maymay, we used to do dumpling classes in person. And then because of the pandemic, we moved them virtual. And actually, there's so many benefits to doing the class virtually that we probably won't ever go back to in person. Really? So you don't think you'd go back to in person? Say more about like, what, what is it about virtual that kind of works better? Well, the virtual class is less expensive for us to produce, and so we can make it more accessible for our guests. So I would say that's the first thing. It's about a third of the price of what we used to charge to do the events in the restaurant. The second thing is that our guests have so much more freedom to make their own fillings, to modify however they want. They can also just sit in on the class and then make dumplings on their own time whenever they feel like it. I think the very best part, though, is that now people all over the country can join together in a class. So we've had grandkids connecting with grandma, you know, from California to Massachusetts, seeing each other making dumplings, holding up the little shapes they create. All of that is really heartwarming and I think not something that we want to lose just because people are able to travel again. From your perspective as a restaurant owner, what do you feel like people are looking for right now in terms of food and cooking? Well, I'll have to kind of harken back to how I first got into food. I loved really learning about the kind of like tips and tricks and old wives tales about food and trying to understand, you know, is it really true that browning a steak seals in the juices, you know, things like that. And I think that people really want to understand those shortcuts, those like fun facts, and being able to deliver them directly to people via video is really fun. And um, I think that during the pandemic, you know, so much is out of everyone's individual control. And being able to try new recipes, to meal plan, to control the food that you're eating and your schedule around it, I think that's one way that people have found some comfort in this time. Does browning a steak really seal in the juices? Unfortunately, it does not. But it does create the Maillard reaction, which is the secret to many, many delicious foods. So I definitely encourage folks to Google that. And there are lots of ways to enhance browning. It's just such a cool little kind of corner of cooking science. Your business, May May, has had to respond to changing cooking and eating habits. As I mentioned at the top, before the pandemic, you had a restaurant in Boston. After the pandemic hit, you closed the restaurant down, and now May May is transitioning to making food. You package it up, mostly dumplings, and then customers can come and, and get it. And it, it, it's hard to predict if people will maintain the current eating habits or cooking habits that we've been talking about, or if they're going to go back to how things were before the pandemic. But you've decided that you're not going back, right? We have. And I think, you know, as with everyone, the pandemic made us reevaluate our priorities and also our strengths and weaknesses. There are so many weaknesses in the restaurant industry. Um, and so in looking at how much our guests really connect with our story, how much they love our food, and especially our dumplings, we felt like 
doubling down on that part of our business made a lot of sense for us. And so in addition to changing the way we're cooking food, we've also started selling at different farmers markets so that we can be in new neighborhoods. Um, and we're looking at getting our wholesale license so that we can continue um, to expand and potentially be in specialty stores, grocery stores. So right now we're making dumplings as fast as we possibly can. And then we're excited to see um, how, how much we can scale and how much we can sell. Yeah, you're very involved in working with restaurants as businesses and even working with them on their business model. And you were very thoughtful about your business model at your restaurant. Do you hope that there are transitions that happen like in tandem with the pandemic? And, and what would those be? A hundred percent. So actually last March, at the very beginning of March, we held a public event and we actually shared the May May profit and loss statement for 2019. We thought we would start a conversation, show everybody our books and kind of try to educate ourselves and each other about what the challenges and realities of the restaurant industry are. Um, and we broadcast it using this uh, weird technology called Zoom, uh, which we are by now very <laughs> familiar with. And so, you know, two weeks later, the bubble kind of burst and all these restaurant businesses were in trouble. But that disruption definitely created an opportunity for us to look critically at different parts of the industry that we have taken for granted or assume cannot be changed. So policies around staffing and labor laws are definitely on the table right now. People who love food deserve to have great careers in it. And the reality prior to the pandemic was that people usually didn't make enough money, they burned out, uh, they brutalized, you know, their bodies, and then they did not have retirement or health insurance or any of the things that most uh, workers in our country get to enjoy. So I hope that as we move things forward, we are having these tough conversations and trying not just to rebuild, but to really evolve. Irene Lee is co-owner of May May in Boston, a restaurant-turned-packaged dumpling company. She is also co-author of the book Double Awesome Chinese Food, Irresistible and Totally Achievable Recipes from Our Chinese American Kitchen. Thank you, Irene, for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Over the last two decades, the number of people diagnosed with diabetes in the U.S. has gone up significantly. And with diabetes comes an increased risk of other serious illnesses like heart attack, stroke, kidney disease, and COVID-19. In Connecticut, nearly 10% of adults have been diagnosed with type 1 or type 2 diabetes, and rates are higher among Black and Latino populations. Wanda Santiago is a community health worker at Lawrence and Memorial Hospital in New London, Connecticut, and as a bilingual diabetes educator, she says her ability to speak with patients in Spanish is key. What I've learned is that sometimes they are scared to reach out when they need something because they're afraid, oh, they won't understand me. I don't know how to do it. I don't know where to go. Santiago says she can help alleviate that fear. When she gets a referral for a patient with diabetes, first she makes sure they have all the resources they need to address any hardships in their life, like food insecurity. 
So then we start with a diabetes education program. I'm very easy going with them. I don't want to make them feel very, like this is a very strict program. And I like that they can um, participate as well. So I start asking if they understand what is diabetes. So I start reaching out, what are the doctors? Do you have any appointments? Um, do you understand the importance of taking your diabetes medication? Do you understand how important is your nutrition? Yeah, so nutrition. Talk a little bit about that and its importance, especially for people who have diabetes. Yes, that is, I think, the, the most the hardest part in diabetes, trying to explain the importance of nutrition. So I start asking them why they usually have for breakfast, for a snack, for lunch, for dinner. And we start from there because I like to give them idea. I don't want to tell them, okay, now you're going to be on a diet. Because when you say that to a patient, it's it's kind of hard. It's, it's pretty hard for them. There's all different cultures. So you raise with this kind of food or nutrition at home and you used to eat the same things. So I just start to asking them what fruits you like, what vegetables you like, then we start from them. I give them ideas and then challenge them. What about if tomorrow you start with this new breakfast, a little bit more healthy, with this new lunch, things like that to try to get them engaged to the program. Fresh fruits and vegetables you've talked about being really important. They're typically more expensive than, you know, processed foods. If you have a patient who is struggling financially, how, how do you help them adjust their diet and stay on budget? So I have printouts in Spanish, and I call that plants based in a budget. So we start from there. And also, there's a food pantries in the area. If they have food insecure or they need support with them, that we have here in New London, a food pantry that offer fresh vegetables and fresh fruits. Hmm. Wanda, do you have a recipe that you recommend um, to patients that a lot of people are responsive to and enjoy? Oh, my God, yes. My favorite, hummus. <laughs> I teach them in how to make a healthy hummus at home. And it's cheaper, it's healthy because they can do hummus and try with a lot of different vegetables or try with the pasta or try with just a simple toast with avocado. Hummus, you can use hummus in such different ways. And I really like to show them and send them videos of me making easy recipes and also sending them pictures as well. Hmm. Well, hummus, that's great. Wanda Santiago is a community health worker at Lawrence and Memorial Hospital in New London, Connecticut. Wanda, thank you so much for talking to us. Thanks to you and thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Conservationists like to say every North Atlantic right whale counts, as the population has fallen to around 360. Recently, one right whale named Snow Cone was found entangled in Cape Cod Bay. This has triggered an outcry from frustrated fishermen who say they're being unfairly blamed for the decline of a critically endangered species. CAI's Eve Zukoff explains. It all started with a Facebook post. This month, a team from Provincetown's Center for Coastal Studies freed snow cone from 300 feet of rope, though some remained, 
possibly embedded in her jaw. The team felt they gave her a fighting chance to shed the rest on her own. We're going to keep an eye on her and help her out if she needs more. This is Scott Landry, who oversees disentanglement efforts. I think we did our best by her. The center described the team's success on its Facebook page and used a photo from an aerial survey that shows the whale and the telltale rope from a thousand feet in the air. So I remember seeing this, you know, they posted something, you know, right whale number 3560, snow cone, 16-year-old breeding female, partially disentangled. Nick Muto has been fishing for lobsters for the last 20 years out of Chatham. Right away, he noticed that the Facebook post said the retrieved rope likely came from a fishery. But there was no close-up picture. So my hashtag, show us the rope, is I'm trying to lay it right on the Center for Coastal Studies as, hey, involve us in the process. Show us the rope. Let us weigh in on what's going on. Nearly 85% of right whales bear scars of entanglement. But some fishermen say they're being cast as villains. As little is publicly known about the specific rope being pulled off of whales. Fishermen say the color, diameter, and specific markings on rope or buoys can almost act like fingerprints to identify the source either geographically or, in some cases, down to an individual fisherman. There's fishing gear up and down the coast. Some of it can be tow lines. Some of it can be discarded lines. Some of it can be from the recreational sector. It's just automatically labeled as fishing gear, and we're the ones that pay the price. The center did make clear the rope probably didn't come from Cape Cod Bay, because snow cones injuries look months old, and right whales haven't been in local waters that long. And also, the Center for Coastal Studies isn't collecting evidence. That job belongs to federal analysts and law enforcement groups that have to be able to study the gear first before releasing photos. Law enforcement will open up an investigation into it. Until the investigation is closed, we don't release a lot of information. Colleen Coogan is a wildlife protection official for the Federal Fisheries Service. She says a law enforcement team and a group of gear analysts, including several fishermen, examine retrieved gear in a warehouse in Rhode Island where members of the public can request a tour. But fishermen say the whole process is bad. Pictures of the gear aren't posted online. Rather, the federal government produces a report that includes descriptions of gear without any photos. And the reports come out so infrequently that the last one is four years old. Hmm. It's a little stall. I, I, I want to see proof. That's Jeff Richardson a sandwich lobsterman who's also been fired up about transparency. He says this is especially frustrating because the stakes are growing more dire. To protect the whales, Massachusetts regulators have required the state's 800 lobstermen to use special rope that breaks more easily under pressure from whales. And they've closed the lobster fishery in nearly all state waters from February to May. In our phone interview, I asked Coogan, the wildlife protection official, whether not releasing photos creates trust issues for fishermen. I think the question that they would want me to ask is, how are the regulations justified by the evidence that you possess? Yeah, that is the million-dollar question, right? Um, so we are, we're authorizing a fishery that we cannot state with confidence is not contributing to the serious injuries and mortalities. And we're not allowed to do that. That's what the laws say. For their part, fishermen say they understand that the whales need to be protected, but they don't feel like they should be expected to take everything on faith. 
They say they're being regulated nearly out of existence and can't even see photos that might prove they're to blame. It only leaves Richardson with less trust and more questions. Why? Why Why, why would you want to try and prove your point saying it's, it's fishing rope, but you're not going to show us any pictures of what you found? To put it simply, they say, show us the rope. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Eve Zukoff. After the break, two local artists reflect on the pandemic, their work, and their bottom line. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. Okay, we're back. The pandemic has brought acute hardship for many artists in New England, and today we're going to hear from two of them. We begin in Massachusetts, where the state's Cultural Council says individual artists have reported more than $30 million in lost income over the last 12 months. WBUR's Ariel Gray spoke with one local singer. It's been a really long week without you. That's the voice of Chelsea-based singer Sony Mai. She remembers the last gig she worked before the COVID-19 shutdown last year. It was a cold February weekend night. It was at Capone's in Peabody. It was a bar gig. And it was not, it was not as busy as it usually is. Mai was paid in cash, so she didn't think to save the money that she had made. So, you know, I'm over here using that cash all willy-nilly because I'm like, okay, next week I have a gig at the burn anyways. But things did close down, and Mai's gigs started to get canceled one by one. So, like, when the pandemic hit, the pandemic hit, that was, like, majority of my income. That was, like, out the door. Mai, who's 27, is a Berkeley College of Music graduate and has been singing professionally for years. She sang at weddings nearly every weekend in 2019. She was expecting 2020 to be similar. If the pandemic never happened, the wedding started in April and it would go all the way to like December. So it's like a gig every single weekend. Each wedding gig would be about $400. Mai estimates that in 2019, she made around $17,000 before taxes from her wedding gigs. But post-pandemic, Mai barely broke $2,000. She still has an office job to fall back on, but even that isn't enough. Like, I only have my full-time job, and my full-time job is Like, honestly, I make enough to just, like, pay my rent. And then I'm, like, penny-pinching to, like, make sure I have groceries to last the next two weeks. You know what I mean? Living in Massachusetts isn't cheap. Mai currently rents an apartment in her hometown, Chelsea. So my rent is around $1,300. Then you have my car note. My car note is around $300. Um, 300, 310 around there, and then my car insurance is about 280. Mai spends over $2,000 a month just for her basic necessities. The first round of stimulus checks helped her cover these costs. Because most of my paycheck has gone to bills, has gone to rent, has gone to groceries. Like the extra money that I could be using on myself, I have to save that because I'm like, anything could happen. 
Mai doesn't just have herself to worry about. Her mother, a Vietnamese immigrant who works as a nail technician, lost a lot of income when the pandemic hit. Also, the Asian like hate crimes that are happening right now. Nobody like people are so weary of getting their nails done by an Asian or something. Like I don't, I don't want to see my mom struggle, but like I try to give money, the money I could use to like you know self care. I like I give it to my mom. It's an added pressure that many working adults from immigrant families have to shoulder. Mai is currently working an additional job as a delivery driver for Whole Foods. I got, I ended up getting a second job, and I started in January. But I'm only doing that until like wedding season picks up, and I'm, I'm like, I'm hoping that it does pick up because now Governor Baker is allowing dance floors for special events like weddings. Mai has one wedding tentatively booked in April, and with Massachusetts reopening venues and music halls with restrictions. There's some hope that 2021 will be better than last year. Hopefully, you know, wedding season comes back this this summer. Let's hope. I've been searching paper for someone just like you. For now, Sunny Mai is recording her own music. Like so many, she can only wait and see what 2021 brings. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Arielle Gray. Now we turn to a painter in New Haven, Connecticut, who had a different experience this past year. Well, she didn't struggle financially; she did suffer loss. WBUR's Krista Laguerra brings us the story. Last year, artist Marla McLeod sold a painting for nearly ten thousand dollars, enough money to pay her current rent for six months. She also worked two jobs. Doubling her income, teaching art on Zoom let her jump from Tufts University to Southern Connecticut State University without leaving her apartment. So it went from really、um, having to、uh, work with next to nothing,、uh, which was not—I mean, it's difficult, but it's when you're used to living like that. I suppose it's okay.、Uh, but now I don't have to, and it feels so good. I feel like my mind feels so free. And I get to do more work. McLeod was finishing her master's in fine arts last spring when the pandemic forced Tufts to shut down its studio space. She moved in with a friend just to have adequate space to paint. Her canvases moved with her, occupying wall space in her friend's home, her sister's basement, and now her own small studio in New Haven, Connecticut. For me, home is wherever I make it,、um, but it's really important for me to have a space that I feel like is home. And there was a period of time, like、um, in between, having to be at my friend's house and having my own space, and then、um, the COVID situation and moving to my sister's house. It was like none of these spaces feel like mine. That was disturbing to me. I didn't like it. She often says her apartment feels dry if it isn't full of art. Her paintings reach from floor to ceiling and are stacked against the wall. Portraits of black women, friends of McLeod's, that relay strength and softness and dignity. Layers of fabric adorn several mannequins. She's preparing for a thesis exhibition that should have happened last year, and it did, online. If I want her skin to feel、um, soft and luscious and realistic, I have to make sure to put those purples and those yellows and those greens in there, in the spaces that they go in. And people are like, "What? Purple, yellow, and green? Yes, purple, yellow, and green. All right." What Marla McLeod sees when she looks at the final painting she completed for that series will always be different from what others see. 
someone else might notice the painstaking brushstrokes, texture, and colors that bring her large-scale portraits to life. They may see the contrast of the dark background against the figure and the vivid way she paints black skin. What Marla sees as she unrolls this particular canvas of a dear friend is loss. One of the things about the painting is that I have to focus, and I have to focus on exactly what I'm doing and exactly where I'm at, what color I'm putting where, how much of it, and things like that. And so with this one, I think I spent more time um, wiping my eyes <laughs> than I was, and that, ma that makes me lose concentration. It makes me lose where I'm at in a, um, in a painting. Her brother died in Seattle last year, three days before her thesis deadline. Everything stopped. She asked for an extension. She spiraled, sitting in front of canvases, unable to work, and confronted with the sudden pang of grief. McLeod is one of three, born in California and raised in foster care, not always together. It's still unknown how her brother passed. And because of the pandemic, they couldn't make funeral arrangements. She still hasn't visited his grave. That was difficult. So I had to say in my head, I had to say in my head, like, I just, like, things are going to keep going. Everything is absolutely insane at that time. You know, um, COVID was in full swing. Like, every time you, I would speak to someone, someone was dying. His hit me really hard, though, because it's my brother, right? It's only the three of us in, like, in life, really. Listening to Whitney Houston and sometimes sitting in silence, McLeod immersed herself in canvases and fabric art sitting over her sewing machine using her textiles to make statements about Black life, all the while processing. What she completed remains a testament to this period. So when you look at this, what do you see? I see the painting that I was able to complete regardless of um, the emotional situation that I was going through. Um, it's like a... It's, it's part of why I hesitate to alter it, you know, because it's like this is when you just knew you could not do it. This is what you were able to do, right? To McLeod, her art continues to serve as both an escape and a catharsis. It allows her the means not to simply survive, but to live. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Cristela Guerra. And that's our show this week. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer, and Lily Tyson. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The music you hear on Next is by musicians in New England. If you want to know who you heard today, just visit our show page at nextnewengland.org. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Media, CAI, WBUR, WSHU, GBH, and the Public's Radio.